Welcome to the fourth episode of Under the Bubble, a show bringing you into conversation with the people of Princeton's campus. For this week's episode, we spoke with Professor Omar Wasso on the recent protests surrounding George Floyd's death and police brutality against African Americans. Professor Wasso is an assistant professor of politics who has been studying civil rights protests for 15 years. He recently published a study on how black protests of the 1960s influenced politics and public opinion. So the big picture question in the paper is, you know, do protests even matter politically? And that's, uh, you know, kind of the first order debate in political science, where there's a lot of evidence that elites dominate political communication. So elected officials, donors have just way more influence than average citizens. And so this was a test of what a growing body of work says that there is, in fact, a way that marginal groups can make their voices heard through means like protest. And I find good evidence that, in fact, these marginal groups are able to influence politics. And at least part of how they do that is through things that disruption that gets picked up by the media and in turn influences public opinion. What I also found was that there's a, a kind of a conditional effect of tactics. And so if protesters in the early part of the 1960s were nonviolent. We see some protest today predicts a headline about civil rights tomorrow. Public opinion follows the media coverage quite closely. And so as protest activity that triggers these headlines about civil rights goes up, in turn, we see the survey respondents answering the question, what's the most important problem in America? also say civil rights is the most important problem. And this is particularly true when nonviolent protesters are met with brutal state repression, right? So the kind of the joint effect of protesters engaging in peaceful resistance and the state engaging in acts of, in some cases, really terrifying violence produces media coverage that both is attracted to the conflict, media has its own interests, and at the same time was media that's very sympathetic to the concern of the protesters. Conversely, in the later part of the 1960s, I find evidence that as protest activity uh, often escalates to protester-initiated violence, so an event might start peaceful but, but, but escalate to protester-initiated violence, that irrespective of what the state does, whether it's more restrained or uses excess force, that tends to generate headlines the next day that mention the word riot. So that's a, so I do another set of statistical tests. I collected 275,000 headlines and was kind of syncing up by day, you know, protest today on headlines tomorrow. And there I find similarly uh, to the earlier period, protests are influencing media, but now the kind of the dominant story coming through the press is about riots and crime and similar consistent with that as the media is covering that when people are asked what's the most important problem in america we see public opinion move towards crime and riots and that ultimately i find evidence that influences the 1968 election in favor of nixon who's running on law and order and on this debate of figuring out nonviolent versus violent protests, I was wondering if you could talk somewhat to how you made distinctions differentiating between what's violent and nonviolent, especially in some gray areas, and deciding how to figure out what is police or initiated violence versus protests or initiated, and how you would recommend people think about those distinctions when looking at today's protests and the media they consume. It's a great question, and it's, it, you know, it's a hard question. One way to think about how this is hard is we all have a sense of what is day and what is night, but if I asked you what's the point where day becomes night, you couldn't say, oh, it's definitely you know, 7.45, right? There's a period of dusk and there are these edge cases or between category cases that, that can be hard. So any 
kind of definition in social science, any kind of categorization in social science is a challenge, but I'm building, thankfully, on decades of work by sociologists and political scientists who've developed a set of measures that they use. And so, for example, in one data set, and I use multiple ones, a violent protest is one that has at least 30 participants and has a significant amount of injury, death, property damage, or arson. And those were the threshold. And a smaller event with a smaller amount of vandalism, I was watching CNN this weekend, dozen kids vandalizing a Starbucks probably wouldn't qualify on its own. Mm -hmm. But you know, a police station going up in flames clearly is something that categorizes. And is the vandalism at the Starbucks some kind of violent resistance? Sure, but in this test, we're saying at least 30 people, right? We want sort of a certain level of, of significance. And I actually add an additional layer. I ask that there be at least 10 arrests, I'm trying to say. I want, I want events with a certain amount of oomph to imagine that they might have political meaning. And in the nonviolent case, people are using data from newspaper accounts of these events. And this was a project out of Stanford called the Dynamics of Collective Action Study. And that research has its own set of measures. But for example, if police violence there are categories where it's like, did the police use tear gas, right? That's like a higher level than if they don't use tear gas. And for protester activity in the nonviolent case, I'm using like the number of participants and there's just a kind of a zero one in their data set of was there protester violence? And that's how I'm drawing on the dynamics of collective action data, which is to be clear, not just about civil rights protests, but it's covering lots of different kinds of protests, lots of different kinds of groups. And so they've tried to have a whole set of criteria. What kind of group is this? Who's the target that they're going after? And then these sort of more fine grained things, how many people were there? And these additional details, like do we observe something like tier gas. So it's it's a little in the weeds. And I have this gift of being able to build on years of work by these other folks. And that also has the slight advantage from a methodological standpoint that I'm not you know cooking the books in some way because I'm using other people's data. And so I take their data and with only modest modification in some of the plots, I take the log or something, or I, I say you have to have at least 10 participants in the protest for me to include it in the, the analysis. I, I'm not doing anything significant to their data. And so that's the, the origins of that. And then there's just this, this longer history of people kind of thinking about how to code those, those mm -hmm. data as violent or nonviolent. And I guess, especially when looking at the civil rights era and when looking at the protests happening right now, I was wondering to what extent, as someone who studies both protests and race, do you think how protests are covered and perceived is influenced by race when it comes to our definitions of violence versus nonviolence? A great question. And so race is really at the center of this when we're talking about civil rights. And there is, so part of how I think about it in the paper is that there are almost two archetypal narratives that we draw upon. And one of them is a rights narrative that really emphasizes the First Amendment tradition, a redress of grievances, a peaceful assembly. It's us going out there and making our claim for rights and justice. And we see in the way the media covered a lot of the early nonviolent protests, and by nonviolent, again, I mean nonviolent protesters, often a violent state, that those events really get represented to the larger public in this rights frame. At the same time, the protests in the later period are much more in what we might call a crime frame, right? That it's sort of, there's almost like at large events, but they're represented not really even as protest, right? A riot doesn't even imply necessarily something political, right? You can have a riot after a soccer match, right? And so 
it's not even thought of in the same category as part of why I use the terms violent protest and nonviolent protest is I'm trying to think of a continuum of protest activity, whereas riot almost says this is another category of behavior. It's like crime, right? And, and to your point about race being at the center of this, we have hundreds of years of this in this country of representing black life as a pathological or lawless, right? That's deeply embedded in our culture. And so even the slightest invocation of crime in a city is going to do a lot of work in public perceptions and the white mind in terms of fear, in terms of getting people to think about, oh, like, like I've been hearing about these, these, I've been hearing these stereotypes about why I should be scared of black people for a long time. So it doesn't take a lot to mobilize that in public mind. And I think that's like a really fraught thing to wrestle with, but it's very clear that it's very much a part of our culture. And part of the challenge for African-American in particular protesters is that you've got to overcome not just people's indifference, you've got to overcome a lot of deep-seated antipathy and stereotypes to make your message heard. And I think that's part of why nonviolent civil disobedience was so effective is because it was able to draw on a different set of archetypes. Mm -hmm. Another large conclusion of the paper that you mentioned before is that you conclude that protester-initiated violence help move discourse and concern toward the idea of social control helping Nixon's campaign. And I was going to ask if you could define social control, the term used in the paper in that context, and how do you compare what we saw from Nixon's law and order campaign to the rhetoric we're seeing now from President Trump? The term social control is another one of these things I draw from another paper. And I realize now that the paper is published and I'm not just talking to other academics, it might have been helpful to, to, be, to use a non-inside political science term. But it basically means crime and riots, right? And so what these other scholars did is they took from 1950 to 1980, so 30 years of polls that asked people what's the most important problem in America. And those are open-ended polls. And that has the great advantage that you're not shoehorning people into some pre-existing set of answers so that, for example, when civil rights goes from being 5%, people saying it's the most important problem, jumping up into the 40, I don't remember the exact number, but it's you know in the 40s, that's, that's possible when it's an open-ended question. You don't anticipate that there's this huge spike in interest in civil rights. The challenge with an open-ended answer is some people might say crime, some people might say riots, some people might say juvenile delinquency, some people might say vandalism. And so what these other scholars did was made four conceptual buckets. There's a civil rights bucket, there's an economy bucket, there's a foreign policy bucket, and what they called a social control bucket. And the simplest way to think about it is it's crime and riots, because if I just pick out the answers that are riots, the patterns are very similar, or crime and riots. But I use their term social control because it, it's a broader category. And I also, and again, this is a little in the weeds, but there's some debate about those categories and how those things are merged. And there's a lot of evidence that people in their fear were thinking about outside agitators in, in ways similar to what we've heard now. They were thinking about crime and riots and things like juvenile delinquency in similar ways. And so I don't think it is especially important to kind of parse out those individual elements, but even when I have the main results stand. So I just use this term that I inherited from some other scholars. Mm -hmm. How do you um, think about what's happening now with the rhetoric from Trump and how do you see him as similar and different to the rhetoric you talk about from Nixon in the paper? 
Trump is using at least a couple of core phrases that Richard Nixon used, the most obvious one being law and order. And the history of law and order begins really in the South as a kind of code word for essentially, you know, controlling the black population. But it doesn't really propagate outside the South much. And then in 1966, in the governor's race in California, sorry, in 1964, Goldwater runs on law and order nationally. And Goldwater loses to Lyndon Johnson in a landslide, but the idea sort of goes national. And then Ronald Reagan in California runs for governor against an incumbent named Pat Brown, and Reagan runs on law and order and wins. So one of the kind of small puzzles of the paper is why is law and order a winning strategy for Reagan, but a losing strategy for Goldwater? And part of my hypothesis is that the uprising in Watts in 1965 really reshapes politics in California right as we go into the 1966 election. That's a very big event. 3,000 incidents of arson is the estimate, uh, dozens of deaths. And so in that context, we're seeing law and order start to become a not just salient, right? Goldwater ran on it, but lost, but, but like a winning strategy. Nixon runs on it in 68 and wins again. And so then for the next 50 plus years, kind of tough on crime becomes a core part of the Republican kind of bundle of promises and commitments. And as crime dropped dramatically following a kind of peak in the early 90s, it became less and less a kind of source of competitive advantage. But Trump has from the beginning run on a campaign of there's a lot to be scared of by these outgroups, right? So, you know, we need a Muslim ban, we need a wall against the Mexicans. And, and so this is very much in line with how he's campaigned in the past. He even ran on law and order in 2016. But it's not clear that it's sticking in quite the same way. So I think there are, there are some important differences. And I'll just quickly go through a few. So one is overall crime is much lower. These protests have been dramatic, but much smaller, relatively speaking, to what we saw in the 1960s in terms of the level of destruction or violence. And though many synchronized in a very small period of time, so dramatic in, in a different way. And there's also just, you know, the white uh, population has become more liberal. Black Lives Matter has, I think, really helped to transform the debate about some of these issues. And videos like we've seen of George Floyd being killed by a police officer, and we can watch with our own eyes the brutality and the callousness of that state violence, also, I think, changes the debate. And so rather than it just being a kind of abstract, terrifying urban unrest, we have some sense of what fuels that anger beginning with Trayvon Martin and Michael Brown and so on. And so we're seeing whites and particularly white liberals express more concern about racial equality. And we're also seeing that in recent polls, at least for now, and I have no idea how this will play out over time, it likely will become more partisan. But right now, what we're seeing is a majority of Americans, even if they don't agree with the protester tactics, say they find that the anger that protesters exhibit is legitimate. On that last thing you were referencing, I was wondering, to what extent do you think social media and the changing media landscape is changing the ways protests are perceived in such a different light than the period that you research? It's a great question, and I think it's just early enough that it's hard to know. Certainly in the 1960s, 
it was a simpler media scape. You had a segregationist Southern newspaper base. You had a national media, particularly in the newly emergent medium of television, but that was but for protest indifferent to Black concerns. And then you had a Black press. And those three groups were had different agendas, but it wasn't so complicated. And they, the national media worked in some ways quite symbiotically with protests in that the early days of TV news didn't even quite know what to do. And so civil rights became a very important story for TV news to cover. And they kind of helped, they helped each other in the sense that TV news became relevant when it covered civil rights and civil rights became powerful when it got covered in the news. So now fast forward, we're in a world where it's super fragmented. And I would point to kind of two major differences. Clearly one is the presence of a video camera in every pocket. This wave of unrest begins with a young woman, 17-year-old Ms. Frazier, who documents, I mean, there are multiple people who document George Floyd's killing, but she gets a shot that I think is particularly moving for people who have taken the time to watch, right? And so we actually, we see his face, we hear him cry for his life, we hear him fighting for his life, we hear him cry for his mother, we see the life drained from his face. That cell phone footage just very powerfully encapsulates a much larger issue, which is the degree to which the state and particularly indiscriminate state violence against African-Americans is a pervasive part of black life and is often unseen by most of America. So cell phone footage is doing a lot of work to take something that was hidden and make it visible. And we're seeing that a lot now. One thing that looked more like the 60s is in the period over, there's a few days over a weekend where a buildings are up in flame, their buildings being vandalized. I think a lot of people are just watching that on CNN or MSNBC or Fox and newspaper accounts where that there were huge ratings. And so that might look like a more traditional three channel mass media world. And so in that scenario, what we're looking at is something that looks a little bit more like a kind of common narrative that may be more rights-focused or crime-focused. And then finally, the more recent period is more peaceful protests and a flood of cell phone footage of police engaging in extra-legal violence. And I think in that case, it starts to look very much like the early 60s period where protesters are peaceful and the state is engaging in brutal repression. And if those videos are being you know, replayed on TV and shared a lot in social media, I think that'll do a lot of work to shape the conversation, again, more in that kind of rights frame. But I think it's too early to tell. And it also may be that we're just, this is kind of ebb and flow and that there may be an escalation of violence by people who are angry about the state repression and there's some kind of retaliatory violence by a more radical wing of protesters, and that will change the story again. So it's very fluid right now. I certainly don't want there to be any violence, but I, I, I expect given the level of conflict that it's likely. I had another question about the media landscape. You mentioned the flow we've been seeing really recently of these videos of police engaging in what you call extra-legal violence. And I'm wondering, to what extent do you think the way that media right now is siloed, like a lot of people, when they go on Twitter, Facebook, or even when they watch a particular network, only see the news that is agreeing with their preconceived notion. To what extent do you see that as a barrier to people seeing videos that emphasize a narrative that they don't agree with outright? I think 
three things are true. So one is in the 1960s, we had news bubbles too, right? Basically white America had gotten news from sources that had no interest in the concerns of black people. And so part of the reason to protest was to redefine the priorities of the white media to take the concerns of black people seriously. And so that was in some ways puncturing this white news bubble of the 1960s. And the second thing I would say is it is also true that there are news bubbles now and so people have, you know, let's just simplify it. There's like, you might have a, a blue lives matter social media feed and someone else might have the kind of the black lives matter social media feed. And there's not going to be maybe much overlap there. But a third thing is also true, I think, both in the 1960s and now, which is that there are people who sit at the border of those worlds. So for example, in 1964, the Civil Rights Act passes in the 1964 presidential election. Again, Johnson wins in a landslide. So there's a large coalition of people who do not defect from the Democratic Party following the Civil Rights Act. In 1968, however, right, Nixon wins. And in my simulations, that is likely to have occurred in the Midwest, the Mid-Atlantic, in places that are not the Deep South. It's potentially racial moderates in places that were exposed to a lot of violent protest activity and that were they were persuadable. They could be pulled out of the, quote, civil rights coalition and into the, quote, law and order coalition. And so those potential swing voters also exist to a degree today. And I think it's it may be hard for people to believe that there are Obama-Trump voters, but clearly we know there were. And I see similar dynamics in the 1960s. So for example, I mentioned the California gubernatorial race. If you were a Democrat who thought Pat Brown, the incumbent governor, did a poor job of handling surveyors called the Watts riot, there was about a 50-point difference in the likelihood that you would support Pat Brown in the 1966 governor's election. If you were a Republican, whether you thought he handled Watts well or not, there was almost no change in your support. And of course, Republicans tend not to vote for Democrats, right? So the movement is not, in, in that particular example, among Republicans, it's not a conservative shift, although clearly some conservatives are also swing voters, but it's really that there's a Democratic coalition that gets fragmented by folks who are not necessarily hostile to racial equality, but who value order more highly. And that, that as, as those potential members of both coalitions are weighing rights and order in a moment of heightened fear in a period where there's a sense of things are kind of falling apart in the country, assassinations, other issues, then order becomes the predominant concern and those folks then move to the law and order coalition. And coming back to today, it's sort of an open question. To what degree will people feel unsafe? I don't think the protests to date have really escalated to that level, but between a pandemic and economic dislocation, it's possible that kind of stress will be amplified. Speaking about the pandemic as well, a lot of people have pointed out that the impact of the pandemic has had disproportionately on communities of color has somewhat fueled the energy in these protests. But then there's also the other narrative of some people finding it difficult to protest because of the public health concern. And I was wondering, as someone who studies the 60s, early 70s, that period, is there any similarity or any time during that period where we saw a virus or a pandemic or something along those lines that may have had a similar impact? Is there anything to, I guess, compare having both forms, as some people have called it, the two pandemics of viral and racism? Is there any similar instance that you study? 
It's interesting. You're the first person to ask that. And I don't recall encountering anything that was like a pandemic in the 60s. There certainly are other kinds of issues at play, whether it's at one point later in the 60s, the Vietnam War. I don't think there's a, I was thinking of impeachment for a second. There's not anything I can think of that maps to a pandemic in that period. And so this does feel distinct in that way, but it's a good nudge. I I will go read up some more and see what I can find. We've talked a lot about the comparison between the current situation and the civil rights movement, but thinking about what's happening right now versus what's been happening, especially at the beginning of Black Lives Matter movement started in summer of 2013 after the death of Trayvon Martin. Just as someone studying protests, what do you see as distinct between this exact moment and the buildup that we've seen? And to what extent do you see what's happening right now as extension of the building momentum of the movement since 2013? So this is me speaking speculatively. I don't have much evidence on this, but it seems hard for me to imagine that the generation of young people who grew up in 2013, 2014, 2015, and were coming of age and making sense of the world weren't shaped by the story of a kid, Trayvon Martin, who was about their age and who was doing something any of them might do, you know, eat some Skittles, and his brutal killing. And and so I, I think the shadow of that incident and the activism led by Black Lives Matter activists almost certainly laid a foundation upon which current activism is building. I don't know that people would be as hyper-concerned about the decades of police violence, they wouldn't be hyper-concerned right now if there hadn't been this effort to make people aware over many, many years. And so it might seem like it's coming out of nowhere, but I don't think that's right. I think this is really grounded in years of struggle and years of trying to raise awareness and a generation of young people who heard that message. Again, the cell phone footage video matters too being able to see for yourself something as outrageous as this police killing, I think also galvanizes people. But certainly it seems very likely that the pandemic and that some people are unemployed, they might have more time. Some people have just felt cooped up and are kind of angry and want to get out and express themselves. So all of those things I think are likely combining, but I don't have any direct evidence. It just seems sort of, that feels more like common sense. And I saw you tweeted out the other day a thread on this that I thought was very interesting on the issue of emphasis on individual police misconduct versus the need for systemic change. And to quote your tweet there, you said, in short, the failure to address police misconduct is both systemic and evidence of how getting bad apples off the street really matters. And you write about how that debate being sort of framed as an either or misses the need for both systemic change and serious attention to the so-called bad apples. And I guess my question is here, could you explain your thoughts on that and also just how you think as a country with this issue and with other issues, we could try to overcome these either or framings? The larger debate there is there are a handful of articles, probably more that say it's not just a bad apples problem when we observe a police killing or some act of indiscriminate excess violence by an officer. And what they are trying to do is shift us from thinking about an individual person to telescoping back a little and looking 
at a bigger picture that's like, what's the system that allowed that person to engage in this egregious behavior? And I'm super sympathetic to that on almost all issues. I would also say, you know, what's the structure, what's the system that produced or contributed to this outcome? But as I look at the data, what was really striking was actually there really are bad apples. And what I mean by that is there are individuals who have these patterns of abuse and that really pop out relative to the average cop. And it's not just that like we see this in the data, the cop who kills Laquan McDonald has 17 complaints against him. The officer who kills Eric Garner has the second highest number of complaints in New York against him. This officer who killed George Floyd had a pattern of abuse. I think the number I saw was again, 17 complaints against him. And so the question becomes, what's going on? And it turns out, well, on the one hand, there is a systemic issue, right? There's no accountability internally. People do all kinds of egregious things and, you know, know, their badge isn't taken away. They're not put on a desk job. They just get sent back out to the street. In any rational organization, a person in New York, there was one person who had 51 complaints against him, right? That's not somebody who should be interacting with civilians, right? That's somebody who you want to keep far away from people because, of course, 51 is the tip of the iceberg. There almost certainly are, I wouldn't be surprised if it's tens uh, or hundreds more people who had a really bad interaction with that officer and a small number who are so outraged by their experience they complained. And so what you could do is think about, well, what happens if focused on that small number? Could it make a difference? And it turned out in a place like Chicago, 1% of officers generated something like 25% of civilian complaints. In New York, 40% of officers had zero complaints against them. But again, something like 1% to 2% had a way disproportionate number of complaints. And so what occurred to me is that you, you still want to keep our eyes on the prize of systemic reform, but getting that 1% to 2% of worst performers off the street might mean that Laquan McDonald is alive, might mean that Eric Garner was alive, might mean that George Floyd was alive because these people with patterns of abuse again and again are the ones who are doing these kind of egregious acts of violence. And this is, to be clear, this is not some great insight of mine. I was looking at um, a magazine for police chiefs and it says the same thing. Like the people who produce these really horrific criminal acts as officers are ones with patterns of abuse. And, and, and it also does a real disservice to the police force as a whole because it poisons any possibility of better relationships that might occur because the, the, you know, the police unions, the contracts, the municipalities defend these extreme cases. And so part of my argument in this one tweet thread and, and an essay at the root was to say, if you wanted to fight for police reform, going after this one to two percent has some great advantages, politically very compelling, right? Who wants to defend the cop with 51 civilian complaints? So you really key in on an issue which gives you a convincing moral high ground and materially it's very meaningful, right? It's like if you could reduce civilian complaints in Chicago 25 percent, that would improve people's lives. And again, giving these sort of anecdotes, Laquan McDonald might be alive. As a final question, a few days ago, I saw that your wife had actually posted about how you had been on the phones since uh, 6 a.m. that day talking to press about your research. Yeah. And she wrote, uh, to quote her, I am proud and glad that when a Chinese reporter asks, when did this start? The person on the other end of the line has been at this long enough to say, well, in 1619. And while it would obviously, you have a lot going on right now, take longer time than you have to give a comprehensive history here. 
what are some books and films and other media that you would recommend for people who want to get smarter when it comes to thinking about race, thinking about policing and all these issues? I love that question. I've been teaching a class at Princeton on film and politics and really trying to braid together issues of intergroup conflict with how do we make sense of these in media? What are the stories we tell? So this is near and dear to my heart. So a book that my students have really liked is called Blood in the Water, and it's about the Attica prison uprising. And it does a beautiful job of really humanizing the people who are, are incarcerated and in, in a try to fight for basic dignity and rights in Attica. And so that book really helps give some context to this contemporary moment. The film LA 92 is on Netflix, is very powerful, talks about the uprising in LA, and again, kind of helps situate it in moments that take you back to the 60s, but very gripping film. A film called Free Angela and All Political Prisoners is has a cinematic gripping. It has some of uh, the qualities of an action movie, but is, uh, is, is, is also a really thoughtful film about race and politics and gender in the 60s and the, the, the FBI's hunt for Angela Davis and the case that she mobilized to fight for her freedom. A couple of others, not so much about race, but thinking about protest and different ways protest can work. How to Survive a Plague about act up and the fight for the AIDS coalition to unleash power, how they fought for rights and recognition, funding for research for uh, to, to fight AIDS. That documentary is superb. And one more I'm trying to think of. I'm trying to picture the whole syllabus. There's definitely a couple of others. One that's on about protest, again, not specifically about race, but I think broadening our sense of who are we trying to hold in these moments is called Crip Camp. And it's on Netflix also and talks quite movingly and also entertaining about the early disability rights movement. And again, it's super entertaining and also super thoughtful and gives you a sense of some really critical, vital moments in American history that you probably haven't seen. And so that's a little bit more about thinking about protest than about race and politics. But that's, that's probably a good batch to get started with, and, uh, and I'll, uh, if we do this again, I'll come prepared with, uh, with, a, with a full <laughs> syllabus. All right. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy day to talk to us about these incredibly important issues. Thank you, Zach. All right. Have a great night. You too. Bye. This episode was produced by Zachary Shevin and River Reynolds under the 144th Managing Board of the Prince. For The Daily Princetonian, I'm Katie Heinzer. Have a wonderful week.